What up, peeps? May 5th. What does 1862 mean to you? Probably nothing, but that was the Battle of Puebla, and that's why we actually celebrate Cinco de Mayo, the Mexican Independence Day, some call it. Well, market's been independent of a lot of things. We'll get into that. Market call here, 30 minutes. I'm Guy Adami, joined by Dan Nathan. Just the two of us like the song. Today's episode brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And we are, in fact, powered by Open Exchange. You can find them at Open Exchange TV on the Twitter, which is actually higher today. Go figure. Dan, woo, what a difference a day makes, which is a lyric from another song. Yeah, you're good at that guy, Dom. You got that down here. And, you know, we've been talking about one step forward, two steps back. And you like to quote that from the much maligned Tunnel of Love album after, what, Bruce stepped away from the E Street Band. He put that thing together. I like There's some good stuff on there. But we've been talking about this kind of whipsaw action, but it's not happening the way that I think bulls would like. We get a big day like yesterday, and then we're likely to take two steps back. And so you and I, we get this, man. We've traded through these sorts of markets before. For. This is very endemic of a bear market, right? And we're going to talk a bit about that more. 24 hours ago, you and I were asking each other, what could the Fed do to surprise the markets there? And the fact, man, I mean, you tell me, you were listening to that presser here, and Steve Leisman asked a great question. Is a 75 basis point hike off the table here? It wasn't a definitive answer. How they get to where the Fed fund target rate about 2.5% by the end of the year, who really cares whether it's 50 or 75 or whatever. That's the thing that the market keyed off of. What was your take then? Okay. Because to me, it just didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense that we were off to the races and that rates got hit off of that. It's interesting. Obviously, I mean, you can just look at the timeline. I mean, on the wake of that answer, the market just was off to the races and classic relief rally. I mean, we can say all the things that I think people have heard us say a hundred times. Classic bear market bounce, these these violent rallies in bear markets, which you mentioned. The next question people will say, are we in a bear market? Does it really even matter? For some stocks, we've been in a bear market for quite some time. But to answer your question, obviously, the market took some solace in that. And now, I never thought 75 basis points was in the cards anyway. It doesn't matter what I think. Clearly, I guess some of the market participants thought that, and they took that effectively off the table. I'll tell you, they really shouldn't have played that card because, again, once again, they continue to back themselves in this corner. With that said, I think today is the realization that, hey, wait a second. We're still in a rising interest rate environment. They're still going to hike. They're still going to reduce their balance sheet. All the things we concerned about 48 hours ago haven't abated, and here we are. So Tuesday night on Fast Money, Mel came to me. She said, what do you think? I said, it's be impossible for the Federal Reserve to be more hawkish than they've been. And by that analysis, in my opinion, you were going to see a relief rally probably up to 42.50 in the S&P 500. I think it closed that day at 41.70. We obviously got up to 4,300 yesterday, and we're right back to those levels. So I said on our call earlier today for Fast Money, we have a conference call. I said, today's price action, out of everything we've seen over the last six months, today's one of the worst days, not because of absolute price, just because it's what it's done in the wake of, obviously, yesterday's rally. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, listen, sentiment readings were horrible. We've been talking about them, AAII. But here's the one disconnect, guy. Per fact set, I think the S&P earnings consensus estimate for this year is about $223. Now, it was maybe a little bit higher to start the year at 228 but that's still calling for an 8% year-over-year increase. And given what we know about inflation, given what we know about the cost of capital, given what we know about large parts of China being locked down, about the uncertainty of when the war in Europe will end, 
and supply chains will ease up a little bit. How the heck is the S&P going to print an up 8% year-over-year earnings? It's just not going to happen, right? And so then you get into this game. And this is, you've been saying this very eloquently over the last few months or so. What is the appropriate multiple to pay for decelerating earnings, for peak margins, for all of these things as we enter into what I think is going to be a new global economy, a sort of bipolar, definitely after this situation with Russia invading Ukraine? We all could figure out how to deal with China over the last 10 years. And we have our form of capitalism and theirs. But now I think we emerge with really two forms of capitalism. And I think the West is going to specifically isolate much of what's gone. And then that's the thing. I think to your point, Guy, about some of these other industrial commodities that you've talked about, oil, maybe you're right. Maybe it just never comes back in the way it should after we've had all of these different economic palpitations that many of them were unforeseen. To your point about crude oil, I mean, clearly crude didn't get the memo in terms of the Fed fighting inflation because the move from in WTI from, I think we got as low as 94 yeah. a couple of weeks ago. I think we're either side of 109, 110 now. I need to look. I mean, that's a pretty significant move. And it's doing it as the dollar has been off to the races and makes you wonder what would crude be doing if the dollar actually getting whacked here? I think it would be significantly higher. But to your point, I think crude oil, obviously, is telling a much different story. You didn't hit the nail on the head in terms of deglobalization. I'm not here to tell you whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I have no idea what it is, but I'll tell you that if in fact that's what we're going down, that's an extraordinarily inflationary process, just in my opinion, which again puts the Fed behind the eight ball. So we'll see what happens. We have a dollar chart up and we're at levels again. You go back all the way to 2002, I think this goes back and you see yeah. we're at levels we haven't seen effectively I mean, in 20 or so years, obviously, we got here in 16. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, we're at pretty yep. critical levels here in the dollar. And a rising dollar, say what you want, for many of these multinationals, it's not particularly good for their earnings either, Dan Nathan. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting point, Guy. You and I spent some time yesterday. Amanda had a couple of great charts. We're looking at some of the disaster du jours the day after earnings, some of these kind of high growth, high tech names that have had 30% plus one day declines after disappointing earnings results. And we put up a bunch of other high growth, high valuation names that were trading at what we still think are big market caps and really fat multiples to sales. And we think there's room to go lower here. And some of those names, you know what they are in the SaaS space. We have Snowflake and CrowdStrike. Those were two that we highlighted yesterday that all had 15 plus multiples to sales and they're down 10% today. So it's really interesting. As soon as you see rates go higher on days like today, you see high valuation stocks absolutely get smushed. You're seeing that in Bitcoin and crypto too. But your point about the dollar in multinationals, Guy, you and I have been saying, okay, look at the MAGA complex, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. And you've said at many occasions that Alphabet of all of them has the most defensible multiple, but Microsoft and Apple at about 20 six times. Apple in particular with a $2.6 trillion market cap, or as of yesterday's close, trading 26 times, expected earnings growth and maybe, I don't know, mid to high single digits, seems really, really expensive to itself, okay? And so if you're looking for another shoe to drop, maybe it is the Microsoft and the Apple that we know get a ton of their sales from outside the US that just printed good quarters and good guidance. Maybe that's as good as it gets right there. And then if you look at these other names that we have up on the board, this is just today's change and then year to date. I mean, it's just going to get smushed here, man. And I just think that the Apple and the Microsoft and the Tesla have room to catch up on the downside. And if they do, they're what, 15% of the S&P 500? That's probably how we breach your 4,000 and on our way to 3750. 
it's just a question of what's the right multiple for decelerating earnings growth. I mean, look, even at 8% earnings growth, if we'll just give you that number, I mean, what's the right multiple for that in a rising rate environment? Again, you know, historically, 17, 17 and a half is really where the market should be. I mean, who's to say it shouldn't go there now or overshoot to the downside? And that's been my point all along. Nobody seems to want to accept that, but stocks go up and stocks go down. In terms of this, big tech tanks, We've said this for a while as well, and I know everybody loves Apple and you know everybody has this love affair with the name, and I understand you own it, you don't trade it, I get all those things, but Apple has had significant peak to trough declines over the last five or six years, no fewer than four or five, 30 to 45% moves from peak to trough, and maybe we're in the midst of that now. 138 has been a level for me in Apple, I think we get there, and then if it gets there, you can make then a pretty compelling case in terms of valuation. Somebody that want to skip a few slides back, but Michael Burry, who I tell you, go back to last summer and look at some of the things that he said. Well, he's been on the Twitter from time to time. And look at what he just put out there on the Twitter. Really interesting stuff. After 2000, the NASDAQ has had 16 bear market rallies of greater than 10%. I mean, you can read the tweet here. He starts comparing things to 1929. Again, if I do yeah. it, that's one thing. If he does it, it's something guy, else. And I got to tell you something. You should really take a look at what he's saying we, here. Guy, we did do it. I know that you forget sometimes some of the stuff. We do a lot of talking, a lot of squawking about the markets here. We did a chart of the NASDAQ and the S&P and the rallies in 2000, 2001, and 02 off of lows. And man, he's not even doing it justice. There were a half a dozen 35% rallies. I mean, so like they can get going in a big, big way. And we saw that. I think the real important part here, Guy, and you and I have talked about this again. There were really three bear markets in the last 20 years, right? The post.com one, global financial crisis, and then obviously the COVID one, the pandemic one in the start of 2020. Now, that one was really, we threw trillions of dollars in monetary and fiscal stimulus, and it didn't last particularly long. It wasn't a protracted bear market, and it was a manipulated recession. But going back to 2000, I mean, the market topped out in March of 2000. It bottomed out in October of 2002. And the financial crisis, we topped out at November of 2007 and bottomed out in March of 2009. And what was the one thing in those? It just took time, man. It took time to work out some of the ills. And I think the thing that a lot of investors just are not going to be able to figure out right now is because we didn't have a long bear market, because we didn't have a deep, well, we had a deep recession, but it wasn't a long recession in 2020. A lot of people think that the Fed can kind of orchestrate a soft landing and fix what's likely to come here in 2022. And the difference now is $9 trillion, the number $9 trillion. That's where the balance sheet of the Fed is. And they haven't even gotten Fed funds even above 1% for all intents and purposes, right, off of that zero interest rate bound. So if the economy does slow, and it already seems to be some indication of that happening, really the only thing that's going to fix this market is going to be valuation compression and time, in my opinion, as far as the economy I think that we have, obviously, an economy led by a consumer. And this is the one thing, Guy, I got to get your take on this, is that if we're going to start to see a negative wealth effect from the stock market, if we were to go down, let's say, in the S&P more than 20%, and we were to see housing start to slow, you saw that 30-year mortgage, like a very long high, the highest level since 2009, above 5%, that's going to hurt the consumer. You say it all the time, two-thirds of GDP is the consumer. The thought of a recession is the thing that causes them to pull back, and that might be the very thing that actually puts us in a recession. People ask, are we in a recession? You know, it's like, what difference does it make? I mean, yeah. first of all, it's backwards looking. I mean, we might be in one right now, for all I know, in terms of this quarter 
being a neg- another negative GDP print, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter. I'll leave that to the economists. What I will say is all consumer sentiment is, in my opinion, and I've said this for a long time, is an overlay of the S&P 500. It doesn't matter whether or not people own stocks. People feel better about things when the stock market goes up. And, you know, for a long time, that's basically all the stock market did. Here's a chart that illustrates the S&P 500 obviously sort of slowed down late November, December, for good reason, by the way. But when the stock market starts going down in a precipitous fashion, people say, wait a second, should I be taking that vacation? Should I be buying that Starbucks? Should I be taking that road trip? And consumer spending stops on a dime. We saw it in the fall of 2018, and maybe we're about to see it now. What's really interesting is, Again, people don't pay attention to the market. Nobody cares when it's going up. I got a call yeah. a couple hours ago from a radio station in California, KFI, which was basically the 1010 wins here in the East Coast, asked me what's going on. So when people start asking questions, then they start looking at their 401ks and then they start deciding whether or not they should spend. And it becomes this cycle of, again, when things are going up, you have this positive yeah. cycle. When, when things are going down, you have that negative effect to your point about the wealth effect. So we'll see. In terms of the S&P, quickly, critical levels. We traded down to 40.50 the other day. I thought we'd get to 4,000. We bounced. Here we are with a 41 handle. I've mentioned 37.50 seemingly 100 times. I'm going to stand by that. I think we get there, and I can do the math to back it up, Dan. Yeah, you know, your point, though, about the recession guy is really interesting, and that's why that S&P level is so important there, because David Rosenberg, an economist, you said you're not an economist, he was quoting somebody on CNBC, David Rubenstein, this morning, he said, we're not going into a recession anytime soon, that's what Rubenstein said. And so, Rosie's comment is, meanwhile, the monthly GDP data show that the economy has already contracted at a 2.4% annual rate from October to March. He's correct, because you don't have to go into a recession once it's already started. Okay. I thought that was really interesting. And so I think when more economists, more strategists start coming around to some of the stuff that we're talking about here, that estimates are too high, that margins are too high, that companies are basically going to have to make a decision to pass on to a weakening consumer, some of these higher costs, or eat it and factor into a hit against their margins. That's when you get a reset in the earnings multiple. And that's when I think the S&P fills in that gap that Amanda made on this fine fact set chart, which gets you back below 4,000. And then if you want to put just like the multiple overshot to the upside guy, what did we get to like 21, 22 times or something like that? It's very likely to overshoot to the downside. So put 16, okay, on a 205 number or something like that. And maybe that's how you get to your number there down there. Yeah, yeah I mean, no, 16 on a 205 number is even worse. But yeah, duly noted. We have a question, and this actually is a great question. We have a lot of smart viewers. We have one of them is extraordinarily smart. I know that anecdotally. And I know that because we went to school together. He's a dear friend. Paul asks, and this is actually a really good question. War recession in Europe versus zero COVID recession in China versus inflation recession in the United States. What do you guys think of this dynamic? I mean, you know what I'm about to say, Dan. That is a bit of a witch's brew. And I got to tell you something. The only one that could probably sort itself out, I guess, out of the three is this zero COVID policy in China. You know, if they were to sort of alleviate things over there, maybe they get back on serious footing. But the inflation problem here is not going to abate anytime soon. And what's going on in Europe, it's amazing. The news cycle is such that we've almost forgotten Russia, Ukraine. Nothing's getting better over there. If anything, it's getting progressively worse. And that's going to manifest itself in terms of Europe and their potential for recession, if not being in one right now, for the foreseeable future. And people say, I don't care about Europe. It's not a big deal. Well, 
Individually, the countries might not be a big deal. Collectively, it's the biggest economy in the world when you look at the Eurozone. 450 million people with a GDP greater than ours, Dan Nathan. It's kind of weird that we started the year out and the big focus was on the Fed's pivot, rising interest rates. Then it turned into geopolitical. Then it turned into, oh my goodness, the combination of all of this is a big mess as it relates to inflation. Then we start saying, well, we started hearing a lot of strategists, you know, listen, all the strategists on the street. There's a couple great ones, Mike Wilson, who we like a lot. He's been very tactical about his calls about where the pockets of weakness might be in the economy and when it might come back here. But you put all that stuff together, you get stagflation. We've been talking about it. Our co-host on our podcast, Danny Moses, on the tape, he introduced the idea last summer before anybody was talking about it. And you put that together on a global fashion, and it just doesn't speak to the fact that any central bank is going to be able to orchestrate a V reversal. There is no put at this point, because you've been saying this guy, if the Fed makes a hard dovish pivot, not saying, oh, we're not going to raise 75 basis points, what they said, yeah, yesterday, that's not dumbest. That's not a pivot, okay? But if they do it, they're going to be doing it for growth reasons. And if they do it for growth reasons, it's going to be too late, which is why I want to look at the NASDAQ here, guy, the NASDAQ 100 really quickly, because you and I, I think, are in the camp that it's going to be these mega cap tech leaders that's going to lead to the downside. And if you look at that level down there, just above, let's call it 12,000 or so, I mean, below that, man, there's just a lot of room. I think a lot of these charts, might go all the way back to their pre-COVID highs before the crash that we saw in February, March of 2020. And that gets you much lower here, man. And I hate to say it, I think it probably does it in the way that we're doing it over the last four months or so, one step forward and two back. And I got to say, guy, you think of the size of Microsoft and the size of Apple and the size of Amazon and the size of Google, okay, those four stocks make up nearly $10 trillion in market cap, nearly 25% or so, maybe 23% of the weight of the S&P 500. They are all down about 5% today. What causes investors to hit the sell button like that? What is the realization less than 24 hours from a massive rip, okay, one of the biggest in terms of market cap that we've had in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, what causes them to do an about face and sell those stocks that way? That's capitulation. That's I can't take it anymore. That's I still yeah. have some money in these names. Let me get out of them. You understand why. Carter says this all the time. The generals are the last to go. Yeah. And to that point, Apple seems to be sort of the last person standing. I mean, Amazon's been taken out to the woodshed. I mean, Amazon made a 52-week low, a multi-year low today. Obviously, Microsoft has been under pressure. Google hasn't performed particularly well. We know what happened with Netflix. So Apple's the one that's been standing. And you get Apple down. Again, I say this one more time. I don't particularly care one way or another about Apple. They're, again, some people fawn over it as if it's their parent. I'm not one of those people. But when Apple was a growth stock, it yeah. traded at a value stock valuation. They're trading at 13 times five or six years ago. Now that it is a value stock, it is. Just do the math. I mean, it's effectively a value stock. It trades and a growth stock valuation at 27 times next year's numbers for a company that has about six and a half, seven percent EPS growth, maybe 8% or so revenue growth doesn't make sense. Maybe it shouldn't trade at a market yeah. multiple, but it shouldn't trade at the multiple it trades at now. So to answer your question, how do we get there? Where do we get there? Because people pull the ripcord on the ones they still have money in. 
they still have earnings. They still yeah, have they, profits. They still have gains. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, those names, they doubled off the lows from the pandemic. And when you think about that in market cap terms, it's truly astounding here. Let's just kind of put today in some context here a little bit. I mean, listen, today's action in yield is confirming thoughts that you've had. And the dollar confirming thoughts that you've had. And crude oil confirming thoughts that you had. Listen, I'm not trying to give Nostradamus too much stroke here. But what I'm saying is it's confirming all of that. And if you think about it, the stock market is near relative lows, okay, of this cycle. And then all those other rates and the dollar and commodities are near relative highs, okay? So my question to you on a day like today, and we are literally have two and a half hours left in the trading day, what saves the market here? Because I got to tell you, I'm looking at a lot of these stocks that we just talked about. Look at bank stocks. I mean, just look around at some of these areas that are meant to be defensive that have valuation support. They're all getting creamed here. I think this is a really nasty day. I mean, like a really, really nasty day. You said on the Fast Money call, you said you think that this is actually, well, I don't know what you said earlier. You said, was it one of the scariest days? We don't recover from this. We're not going to be up 3% tomorrow. There's nothing the Fed can say. They can't say, oh, we screwed up. I'm just kidding. You know what I mean? So how do we find some footing here? Well, I will tell you, and we have a question that's going to speak to my answer. So Robert asked, do you think the VIX makes it over 35? The short answer is we should be over 35 right now. The fact that we're not, I take some encouragement. So what potentially saves us is maybe people have enough protection on, in other words, have enough put protection on, have bought enough volatility where almost by definition, they're going to be the support. They're going to be the buyer of last resort. So that could be a potential sort of I don't know, speed bump on the way lower. That's one thing. In terms of earnings, well, we're pretty much through the earnings cycle. We're going into a seasonally pretty interesting period of time. So I don't know what really is going to be the catalyst to take us higher. I guess if you were to get something out of Russia, Ukraine, peace were to break out, I think you'd have a huge knee-jerk reaction on the back of that to the upside in the S&P 500. I think it'll be short-lived. But to answer your question, those are two things I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, and you just mentioned the situation in China. If, if China were to open up, they're in stimulus mode here too. And they've also made some indications that they're going to take their foot off the neck of some of their tech champions too. I mean, I think it's really important Like when we're looking at a day like today, I don't see any silver linings guy in the stuff that I'm staring at. I'm like, in fact, set screen, but it's really important to kind of get a sense of what are some of the things that could surprise. And I think on the geopolitical front, that makes a lot of sense. I think your point about the dollar, though, is really important. If this thing were to break out of this range, we're looking at that long-term chart. I mean, that's something that quarter over quarter from just a GDP standpoint, that's a massive rate of change. And so that's something that's likely to be a drag on demand outside of the U.S., but then also hurt margins for our companies here. And it brings us back to the fact that we still think that the minute that we start to see chops to S&P earnings estimates, that's when you start saying to yourself, okay, I can see us bottoming at a 17 multiple. You didn't like my 16 multiple, right? But a 17 multiple with 2% earnings growth that gets you down to 37.50 or something like that. Is that how you kind of back into that? That's how I back into it. You know, again, 17, 17 and a half. I mean, it depends on, listen, you're obviously multiplying two numbers together, so I get it. I mean, you can finagle any way you want. 37.50 made a lot of sense to me, but we could clearly overshoot to the downside in terms of multiple the same way we overshot to the upside, not for a month, not for two months, for over a year in terms of where the S&P 500 multiple was. And Jerome Powell himself said it 
many months ago, probably a year or so ago, that in a zero interest rate environment, valuations don't matter. I'm paraphrasing, but go back and listen. Well, that's great, JP. If they don't matter in a zero interest rate environment, I'll give you that. Well, guess what? When you're raising rates and when the bond market is effectively broken, and let's take a look at the 10-year chart because say what you want, the bond market is absolutely broken. We're seeing now 10, 15 basis points moves in hours. It doesn't make any sense. And I will tell you, if you had told me yesterday that the market was going to be 1,000 down, 1,000 Dow handles, or points, where would interest rates be? I thought actually bond market would rally. I thought rates would go lower and send a flight to quality. The fact that we're not, I don't even know what that means. So take a look at this. I mean, this goes back, obviously, three or so years when rates were at these levels last time. We should be at a resistance level here, but for whatever reason, we're not. So that's something to th sort of think about as well. And I'll add one more thing to this witch's brew. Not that I'm trying to get all Palani here, but I will tell you, <laughs> Long before anybody was talking about it, I was pointing out the HYG, and I said, listen, this is something you folks should be watching. It typically doesn't trade. It was trading around 87 at the time. But I said, you know, this is something that's sort of been the foreshadow with the precursor to some pretty wicked market sell-offs. And that thing's gone from basically 89, which it was forever, down to this 78 and a half level. And that doesn't seem like a big deal. Well, it's a big deal, Dan. To bring up high yield credit is really important. I think you would agree that at the start of the pandemic, when we're in that black hole, as it's been referred to, we just didn't know how things were going to happen. When the Fed hit with all that monetary stimulus before any fiscal stimulus, what they were really trying to do is avoid credit seizing up and cause a credit crisis. And so we did see those indices get absolutely smushed. But at the end of the day, we just didn't see a lot of defaults. And so here we are two years on, they flooded the zone with both monetary and fiscal. We're starting to see that wear off and now they're tightening. So to your point about these indices, the JNK or the HYG headed back towards levels that they were below in late 2018, right? The last time the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was above 3%. I think it got to about 3.3%. And I guess let's just kind of speak to this for a couple minutes here, Guy. All right. If we're talking about yields, and we're talking about Fed funds. Fed funds was 6.5% at the highs in 2000. The stock market got cut in half, okay? It was 5.25% in 2007. Stock market and the S&P, again, got cut in half. In 2018, Fed funds got to 2.5%. That's where the Fed wants to get it right now. That's what they're kind of indicating here. And the stock market went down 20% in a straight line. So here we are. We're basically indicated to be 1.5% in June at Fed funds. The 10-year has already moved. The two-year is just obviously been ripping here at 2.72% here. The stock market, okay, I'm looking at the S&P, it's down 12.5%, guy. That just doesn't square up correctly, does it? No, it doesn't. I think what you're saying is given all those parameters, all those numbers you just mentioned, the obvious one that's the last to go is going to be in the form of the broader market. And down 12.5%, okay, you know, it should be more. And Again, I know we're sort of coming up against it, and we answered some questions, which is great. We're getting audience questions, but I'll say this. The reason why I'm a Fed hater is because they somehow think they can control things they have no control whatsoever over. And basically, the last few years, they've allowed people to really enjoy themselves in terms of being able to spend, but all they've done is prolong the inevitable, and they've gotten people to a level of spending that's unsustainable. And the problem is, on the back end, it becomes very painful when they're doing what they should have been doing three or four years ago. That's just my take. Now, are they bad guys and gals? No, they're not. 
But the fact that they somehow can think they can control something they have zero control over, and they got the inflation that they begged for for years. And when I say begged for, go back and listen to some of those speeches. We need inflation. We want inflation. Well, guess what? They screwed people over basically more than half this country when they were begging for it. And they took interest rates down to zero because the only thing that helped the wealthy people. And now that they're trying to quell it, they're screwing the same people that they screwed over the first time, the people that are least equipped to deal with inflation. So why can't I stand these people? Because they should know better. And the fact that they don't is problematic. Anyway, that's my little soapbox. That's what, wouldn't we call that a rip off the tape if we were on our podcast there? That was, I could that be was... a lot worse, believe it or not. I <laughs> no, mean, I, you know, you know guy, you know, people I... say you're not that Let me tell you something. I sort of see what's going on. I get what's going on. Believe me. And the fact that there's still people out there that believe these guys, mostly men, can somehow navigate a soft landing is complete horseshit. Back to you. I'm with you, people. I'm with you, Guy Adami. All right, well, let's just kind of finish off with our friend John Butters from FactSet. He is the senior earnings analyst. He has a weekly publication. You can get it on the FactSet blog. It's called Earnings Insight. We love John Butters. He's been on Market Call before. I hope to have him back very soon. And he has some good data here, man. I love getting a preview of this Earnings Insight. He's just basically telling us in some data what we already know here, that positive EPS surprises, they've been rewarded. Um, but again, it's kind of a one step up, like four or five back, because the negative surprises are just absolutely getting pummeled. And here's the one thing I would say, heading into this Q1 earnings season, guy, I was thinking, eh, maybe there's a chance we get a Microsoft or an Apple to guide down the sort of guidance that we saw out of Amazon. But man, oh man, you better hope that they don't, because look at what's gone on with Amazon with its price action since they guided down. It wasn't a one-day move like Netflix, but as far as market cap terms, it's been multiples of what Netflix lost. I'm looking at Apple, and I don't mean to harp on it other than it is this beloved stock for some reason. We are in one of the worst stock markets we have been in other than that pandemic short period in a very, very long time. And this stock is only down 6% on the year, guy. Does that make any sense to you? I'm just saying, again, the largest stock in the market. I said on Fast Money last night, I think the Fed buys Apple. I do. I think there's a plunge protection. I think that they know that if they buy the largest stock in the market and they keep it elevated, it keeps the NASDAQ and the S&P. It's 7% of the S&P. It's 13% of the NASDAQ. And hey, why the heck not? Berkshire Hathaway is loaded up in the Apple to the gills. So to me, I just think that that one is the one you really want to be careful of, especially given what we saw out of Google after their results and the fact that it just seems like Microsoft and Apple just seem like they stick out like a sore thumb. Well, if that's going on, I mean, there's a lot more problems than I realize. And we have bigger fish to fry. Nothing surprises me at this point. But what I'll tell you about Butter Slide is this. This illustrates visually what I say for a long yeah. time. You know, when you've had bad news, good price action, well, now you have good news, bad price action. And that's what we're seeing. When that happens, that's basically indicative of a turn in the market. And go back again to November, because that's when this all started, Dan Nathan. But that's it. We said 30 minutes, we're 31. We got a lot of questions. I appreciate it. Obviously, thanks for tuning in. Depending on what happens tomorrow, maybe we'll do a Twitter spaces. Who knows? But that's it for Market Call. Want to thank our sponsors, FactSet. We love FactSet. And of course, Open Exchange. We will be back on Monday, if not tomorrow, on Twitter spaces at one o'clock. Hasta la vista, baby. Thanks, guy. Thanks. 